This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Contemporary historians have searched for the historical Muhammad along many paths. In Muhammad and the Empires of Faith, The Making of the Prophet of Islam, published with University of California Press in 2020, Sean Anthony recommends employing non-Muslim and Muslim sources in tandem in order to view a fuller landscape of late antiquity. Anthony revisits the earliest Arabic materials, including the Quran, epigraphic and archaeological evidence, as well as contemporaneous non-Muslim sources, and accounts preserved in the Sira Maghazi literature. These make up the four cardinal sources for his historical and philological method. Anthony's book both introduces a comprehensive portrait of the sources available for understanding Muhammad in his time period, as well as demonstrates how we can arrive at new insights through a lateral reading across the late antique period. In our conversation, we discuss the earliest evidence mentioning Muhammad, non-Muslim testimonies, narratives of Muhammad under the Umayyads, reinvestigating Muhammad as a merchant, the role of the scholarly tradition in recording biographical accounts, the Sira of Ibn Ishaq, how Abbasid imperial discourses shaped biographical narratives, literary conventions and cultural aesthetics of the late antique hagiographical writings, comparative readings across late antiquity, and future directions for historians. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now on to my conversation with Sean Anthony about Muhammad and the Empires of Faith, the making of the Prophet of Islam. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about your new book, Muhammad and the Empires of Faith. Um, we always start these conversations with a little bit of biographical information. And we, we spoke before about one of your previous books, but uh, I mean, you've done a lot of work in between. And I imagine some, some of the, the narrative might be uh, relevant for the work you're doing in this book. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, training, uh, perhaps mentors or moments that shaped kind of the the approaches you take which is a big part of this book um stuff like that how did you uh get interested in these materials and uh where do you where do you come from as a scholar yeah like you said there's there's many ways of, of telling that story and i kind of wonder uh because i've been thinking a lot about memory and how memory feeds into history and all this other stuff how if I would compare the earlier account that I gave you, you know, what is, you know, what would I say new? What am I going to say different? Who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Do a little source critical analysis. Uh, but in any case, I guess my my first real encounter with this type of uh, with Islam, thinking about historical uh, historical Muhammad, all that other stuff. Um. First time I ever thought about it was probably when I was in the 10th grade in high school. I had a, uh, a history teacher that used to let the kids hang out in his uh, classroom and play cards during uh, a lunch hour. And I wasn't one of the cool kids that played cards. Usually I think it was Euchre they played with him. Uh, but you could go around and, and shuffle to his library that he had there. And he had a Quran uh, translated by Yusuf Ali there. And he had just talked about uh, Islam when introducing the world religions and things like that. And I remember as a, a kid in the 10th grade, 
thinking about all the religions, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a little bit silly, but I was thinking about, well, you know, this is these religions, they make like pretty big claims for themselves. And I think we went through Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. Did I say Judaism already? And I thought about them all and I thought, you know, you know, which one, if will I suffer the most or will I be like most regretful if um if I get it wrong, right? If that religion is true and and I don't believe, I thought, well, Hinduism and Buddhism, if I get it wrong, I'll just be reincarnated and I'll get another chance. Judaism, you know, oh, the wrong parents. And so Islam and Christianity, though, they say that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in them. Oof, which one's which? Which one should I choose? And so I started uh, kind of being interested in, in that type of stuff. Um, and so I really, I think my actual academic experience happened when I was around that same age, around 15. I started reading uh, historical books that I found at my local bookstores. Um, and, you know, I was, I was fascinated by both Christianity and Islam, but I think I was more taken in by Christianity and Christian theology. Initially, I thought I was going to become a minister, so I went to uh, college to study kind of Christian theology, Christian history. But I continued to be fascinated by Islam. I kind of had a, uh, say, a crisis of faith of sorts uh, when I was in the middle of college. I wanted to do something else. I decided to do a study abroad. I chose to go to Cairo. And when I was in Cairo, uh, instead of just flying back to the States from Cairo, I would travel to Istanbul. Uh, we kind of traveled from Cairo to Istanbul overland. And my, my brain was pretty just exploded. And I decided that uh, the region, its history, and all that other stuff was, was something that was really appealing to me. And I also felt the more that I said it had sort of a bit of a biblical studies background, interest, reading, kind of crit historical critical scholarship was very interesting to me when I was an undergrad. And I looked at Islam, I was like, well, you know, not so much has been done as has been done in the era of the kind of the arena of biblical studies. So it got me interested more in Islamic studies. Um, I did an MA at the American University in Cairo, and then I uh, went to do my PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Uh, and Fred Donner, Wadal Qadi, Bahir Qutbuddin, and others were. Uh, kind of major advisors of mine. This was this has always been, I think for a very long time, ever since I, you know I was a teenager, I guess you can say now, it's just been a, a historical, philological, textual sandbox that I've I've enjoyed playing in, and uh, it's enriched my life immensely. So I'm thankful to everyone's helped me out. Yeah, that's great. Now um, you you. Uh have a lot of great scholarship already, a few books out, translations. Um, there's there's common through lines, I think, um, in this book. Um, I, ha I haven't read everything of yours, Sean, but um, <laughs> from what, uh, what I have, it seems that in this book, you're being much more explicit about kind of uh, a methodological type of through line, um, which I think is really valuable. Um, but maybe you could kind of walk us through um, how this specific book emerged for you and how it kind of connects to some of those other projects you've been involved in. I think really one of the reasons that I was inspired to write the book um, is what I think is important transformations that have been going on in the field, uh, I think beginning probably in the late 90s, maybe you could date it earlier, and which I see as kind of a, a collapse of revisionist historiography, um, as at least at least as people imagined the direction it was going to take, uh, following the publication in the seventies of things like Hagarism or the Sectarian Milieu by John Wansbrough. Hagarism, of course, was written by Cronin Cook, uh, and I kind of wanted to write a book about what I thought could be the future of. of the historical Muhammad uh, work on early Islam that was, I hope to be kind of a different take, a new take, a fresh take that will sort of reinvigorate it. I think Quranic studies right now has a lot of energy it, behind it for good reason. There's been very important manuscripts that have been discovered, studied, um, and are access to uh, Muslim scholarship, Muslim philology, uh, both classical and medieval 
really modern is uh, much better, much stronger than it used to be. Um, and I was I was just hoping to return to some of these older questions that a lot of people I think have stopped asking in terms of what can we know about the past? What can we know about the historical Muhammad? What role does historical methodology play? What does a kind of a post-Orientalist, post-revisionist approach to uh, early Islamic history look like? Um, I'm just trying to trying to explore that and trying to find kind of my my way through it, yet still maintain what I thought would be a, a very robust historiographical frame, a very robust kind of theological grounding, uh, and just lay out some of the evidence that perhaps people that haven't been following the field very closely for the last uh, decades or so uh, might be surprised that it's out there. And some of the kind of interesting findings that I, that I hope uh, this kind of newer approach that I try to outline can, uh, can provide. Now, the, the kind of crux of the book, I guess, is this uh, Sierra Magazi literature. Um, many people might be familiar with this already, but may, others might not. So um, can you tell us a little bit about this body of work? Um, what, is it, what does it look like? What does it tell us? Um, how have contemporary historians understood them? What kind of challenges they pose for historians? Yeah, sure. Um, well, what I kind of lay out is, well, let me, let me put it this way. I, I see the book as kind of being divided into kind of three main sections. And the first section lays out what I think will would be uh, a type of mirror Muhammad, a kind of low-resolution Muhammad that you get from three sources. Uh, there would be the epigraphy, the Quran itself, uh, early non-Muslim accounts written in Syriac, Armenian, Greek, etc. And then I shift to kind of midway in the second part of the book and third parts of the book uh, to this really big source, this really important source for uh, the kind of cultural memory of Muslims and for early Arabic historiography called the Sira Mahazi literature. And the second part kind of asks, what's the origin of this literature? What's its purpose? And the third part kind of explores like how can a modern historian use it, interact with it? Or some strategies that we can use for for reading it. Um, so the Sira Mahazi literature. So what is it? <laughs> Essentially, it's the epic of the Prophet Muhammad's life, and uh, as kind of imagined and written down, probably just about like a century after his his death. I try to push that date a bit uh, earlier and closer to to his lifetime, uh, and I essentially try to answer the question of who were the first people who wrote uh, down the life of the Prophet Muhammad? Uh, why does the genre look like it does today? How is it preserved? And all sorts of questions like this. The usual uh, thing that you hear people say is that we don't really have any, story, uh, any historical information about the Prophet Muhammad that's written down and literary sources in Arabic until this figure by the name of Ibn Hisham. And so over 200 years after uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and Ibn Hisham very famously uh, redacts and uh, compiles an earlier author's work by the name of Ibn Ishaq, who dies in 767, and he is patronized by the Abbasid Caliphs, who had just recently come into power in 750 as kind of the new Caliphal dynasty. and often the kind of the old view is that Ibn Ishaq, as uh, read by Ibn Hisham, is sort of a bottleneck, historiographical bottleneck, right? You can either accept what Ibn Ishaq says as historically true, and some of it kind of is uh, it's a struggle to accept for, for modern critical historians, or you can kind of leave it to the side, right? You can't really work with it. You know, what I try to do is replace that kind of old trope and saying, actually, we have more than Ibn Ishaq. Uh, we have other authors that are available. We have earlier authors. I spent a, a great deal of time talking about the corpus of one of Ibn Ishaq's teachers, a man by the name of Ibn Shahab Zuhri. Ibn Ishaq, like I said uh, just now, was uh, very closely attached to the Abbasid court, Abbasid uh, being the Abbasid caliphs who came to power in 750. Ibn Shahab was a scholar like Ibn Ishaq from Medina, but he was an Arab from Quraysh. 
and he was very closely attached to the uh, court of the Umayyads, the uh, caliphal dynasty that preceded uh, the Abbasids and whom the Abbasids overturned in 750. Uh, so I'm pretty convinced that we actually have uh, a large amount of material from this guy, Ibn Jahab Zuhri, and who wrote it down and recorded these traditions at the behest of the Umayyad Caliphate. Uh, Ibn Jahab Zuhri dies in 742, so we're a little bit earlier. Uh, and I also try to push it back even further that, and say that we very likely have uh, a substantial corpus that even goes back to Ibijahab Zuri's teacher. And this guy is uh, someone by the name of Orwa Ibn Zubair, and he's very interesting, uh, at least to me he is. Uh, and one of the reasons why he's very interesting is because he is he's a person that actually knew people that intimately knew the Prophet Muhammad himself. So Orwa Ibn Zubair is famously the nephew of Aisha, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, wife, uh, who is a very important source for uh, traditions about his life and things like that. And he was also um, the son of a very prominent companion of the prophet by the name of El-Zubair, and he was the brother of someone that tried to topple unsuccessfully the Umayyad Caliphate as well. So he's a very interesting figure. And we have letters uh, that are written, it seems, by him to uh, a couple of Umayyad Caliphs that I think are very important sources for the life of Muhammad. So in other words, one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, say, well, look, we have a lot more material from this genre than Ibn Ishaq alone, and that we need to pay attention to this material, and we should understand how it evolves chronologically over time, and that this material is mostly quoted in later sources, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't originate at an early date. Um, and also the other thing that I, I want to do is, is show how these sources are very much embedded in and um, affected by the political projects of their time. So it's very significant that Orwa, Zuhri, Ibn Ishaq, all these guys are writing as members of, uh, of the political elite of the kind of the hegemonic uh, class of the early Islamic polity, whether it's held by the Umayyads or the Abbasids, and that they, their project is not just about writing the events of the Prophet Muhammad's life, but sort of explaining how the Prophet Muhammad is, is sort of the most central figure in history, um, how his message and his life uh, gives birth to the most significant religion and, and the most significant community that carries this religion in human history and how they are kind of the, the, the zenith of God's plan, his providential plan for kind of uh, uh, humanity that will eventually, of course, culminate in the end of time, the day of judgment, we'll all be judged as either wicked or righteous, etc. So there's a lot going on uh, with these with these materials, and I try to kind of flesh all that out and and make it seem uh, a more interesting enterprise, I think, and, and hopefully uh, see the genre less easily dismissed as uh, uh, as kind of, uh, I, I don't know, as, as, like I said, it's not, not so much the bottleneck that it, that it once was. Hope that's yeah, that was a really detailed kind of a bird's eye view um, of the whole the whole book and some of the some of the paths you take. Um, I'm hoping we can zoom in here to a couple of things you've you've alluded to already. Um, so you you break the the book down in these kind of three parts, as you mentioned earlier. The the first you kind of look at uh, the earliest materials we have, um, and there you talk about uh, some of these epigraphic type materials, uh, non-Muslim testimonies uh, talking about uh, or alluding to Muhammad. Um, can you give us uh, kind of a, a snapshot of, of these, I think you call them the, the cardinal sources that we, the, we have here. Um, so what, what, are, what are the earliest materials that we have? Um, and then what do they tell us? Yeah. Uh, so the, I, the earliest material I think that we have is the Quran itself. And this is something we alluded, alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, but the Quranic text, uh, in my view, had, was codified at a very early date, probably in the reign of the, the third uh, Caliph Ahmad. And one thing that's happened in recent decades is 
that we've been able to look at the earliest manuscripts of the Quran, both from kind of a codological perspective, so basically the perspective of the science of the book, being able to radiocarbon date the materials on which uh, Quran fragments are written, and we're able to look at the kind of the language uh, being used in the Quran and things like that. We have a very good sense that the Quran is a genuine kind of artifact of the early religiosity of of uh, of the first Muslims, and was also an, an artifact of, of Muhammad's earliest preaching, right? So we have that. And the, one of the things that one might say is like, well, once just, if it's so good and great, why don't we just use that, you know, that scripture? Why don't we just use the Quran to write the history of uh, of the Prophet Muhammad? And the thing is, that the Quran is not really too conducive for that. It doesn't contain a lot of narratives about the Prophet Muhammad's life or um, – uh, or his companions, at least not uh, narratives that are explicit. Uh, this is a little bit of a bad metaphor, but if any of your kind of listeners or any listeners familiar with the Psalms, I know the Psalms weren't really written by David, but imagine trying to rewrite the Book of Kings relying only on the Psalms, right? It, it would be almost impossible. It would be impossible. And in, in any case, the Psalms need to be read in, in light of um, – what the Psalms say, not in light of what other texts say. And the same thing goes for the Quran. So the Quran doesn't necessarily give us um, a narrative about the Prophet Muhammad, but, it, but, the, but the Quran does tell us a lot about uh, what the Prophet Muhammad in the early community believed, uh, what types of religious practices were important to them, uh, how they viewed their place amidst the monotheistic communities of the late antique Near East, etc. So there's a lot there. I don't want to undersell it. And the second source uh, that I cite are kind of early non-Muslim accounts of uh, of the conquests, and then we also have kind of what they say, like about these conquerors that are coming from uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And very rarely do they make comments about, let's say, uh, uh, Muslim belief. Uh, very rarely do they have. A great deal to say. In a lot of the times, they have kind of polemical or uh, kind of distorted accounts of of what the conquerors believe, say or do, or things like that. But they are very good at, ex- at talking about their own experience of the conquest, right? And there's a lot of things that uh, what's interesting about them is that they know, for example, that there is a man named Muhammad that is the leader of these people, right? Uh, that they kind of revere him, that they regard him as a teacher, that he uh, that he brings forth uh, guidance, that he uh, has a law that they uh, adhere to, um, all sorts of things like that. Uh, that they can't eat pork, you know. This, so there's a lot of these sources. Most of them are written uh, by by churchmen or uh, people that are somehow part of the church. Uh, the writing in Greek, writing in Syriac, writing in Armenian, those are the main uh, sources. Uh, but they also give us a, a very kind of basic outline of, of who this, this individual uh, is, to uh, this, this, this individual named the Prophet Muhammad. Right? Uh, very rarely actually do they call him a prophet, interestingly enough. They recognize him as a as a lawgiver, as I said, as a teacher, uh, but it's not really until after 690 that you see them being aware that Muslims regard him as a, as a type of prophet, at least as far as the current evidence that we have is. But they do note uh, that they pray. They note about they make notes about kind of the uh, the Hajj. They make very uh, uh, very interesting kind of notes about kind of the public aspect of of really Muslim religiosity. And about kind of Muhammad himself. Some of these are very early, like a lot of there are at least mention of the of the name of the name of the Prophet Muhammad. We have, you know, we have at least two sources that probably date within a decade of his death. So that's really quite extraordinary, especially if you compare uh, that to other historical uh, founders of religion, like say Moses. And we don't have anything remotely uh, historical that attests to Moses' existence, and let alone within uh, a decade of his of his death. The same things if you look at uh, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth, we don't have anything like this uh, in terms of a person writing about his existence within a decade of his death. Um, in any case, after those non-Muslim sources, uh, we have epigraphy, which is another place that's been really exploding in terms of the evidence that's available. So what is epigraphy? Epigraphy is when uh, either officials, 
uh, they could be state officials or whoever kind of write on uh, buildings have kind of official inscriptions that uh, say something or other, or you have individuals. Sometimes we, we call what the individuals write graffiti, but it's not like graffiti and like uh, people have tagging walls and with uh, spray paint or anything like that. It's, it's just people kind of writing a lot of times prayers, invocations, uh, asking for, for prayers later on. Uh, we also have epitaphs, so tombstones. As you kind of gather all of that type of material together, so things that Muslims were writing in, say, the first hundred years after 632 uh, in Arabic, usually, uh, and what they were writing and what they were saying about the Prophet Muhammad within those first hundred years. You had all sorts of interesting material. Of course, you have mentions of the Prophet Muhammad. You have mentions of uh, him being an intercessor for people at the Day of Judgment. Uh, you have, uh, you know, mentions of, of him and, and asking God to kind of bless him and, and stuff like that. So uh, we have a, a good deal of material that is written also, and I would say the register or using kind of the, the discourse of the Quran as a scripture as well. So these early inscriptions also give us important attestations in the way in which people are reading the Quran, internalizing the Quran, including it in their prayers and things like that, their prayers for forgiveness, their prayers for blessing. Uh, and they use, they use Quranic, you know, the Quranic idiom to do so. Um, and this is something that you don't find, you know, before Islam, you don't find what we recognize as the Quranic idiom and inscriptions from, um, the 6th century, so the 500s, but as soon as you go to uh, the 600s, uh, and you, the 7th century, and then, of course, the, uh, the 800s, uh, 700s, so, uh, you get all of these inscriptions that kind of use the Quranic idiom as kind of the expression of their kind of religiosity and their faith and things like that. So all in all, if we look at like all these materials together, uh, that gives us what, what I would say is, is a low-resolution view of the prophet muhammad and so the quran the non-muslim source materials the epigraphy right uh what we get is this idea of you know there's a series of fundamental beliefs that uh the prophet muhammad and his community kind of espouse right this is sort of prophetic monotheism right so the idea that there is this there's one god created the universe and he communicates to humanity his will through people called prophets and that when he communicates to these prophets, they, they're recorded down in scripture, right? Uh, and that Arabic uh, is a key kind of identity marker for uh, these early Muslims and for that early message. Um, that you have this embrace of the biblical and salvation history of the Jews and Christians. So Muhammad is mentioned in these inscriptions alongside Moses. Muhammad is mentioned alongside Jesus and others. Uh, we have this very clear belief in eschatology that one day the world will end and that one day humanity will be raised from the dead and that us as individuals and as a collective, we will be judged. Uh, uh, and if we are wicked, we will be punished with the torments of the inferno or hell. And if we are righteous, we will be blessed with the, uh, uh, with the glories of paradise. Uh, and then also we have all these other things too. Uh, we have the, emer the emergence of a new kind of uh, sacred calendar based on the Hijra. Uh, we get mentions of pilgrimage, ritual sacrifice. Uh, we have mention of the sacred struggle of jihad. Uh, it's a kind of the collective community action to kind of expand uh, the borders and the dominion of the early Islam of the early Islamic polity of this this ummah of Muhammad. So there's a lot of material there. Uh, I've gone through I got through a little bit of a laundry list there. Uh, but one of the things that I kind of want to uh, try to communicate with is, is if once you look at all of these uh, kind of tiny little dots and you zoom out. And uh, you look at the constellation of the whole, it's a really impressive body of evidence, especially when you consider like everything that I talked to you about is now it appears within the first hundred years. Right? So I, it's, I think it's a pretty extraordinary uh, corpus that has been underappreciated up to this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in the second chapter, you kind of walk us through uh, kind of a case study, too, and thinking about uh, kind of revisiting these early sources and and working with them against kind of the assumptions from later narratives of Muhammad, what, what kind of uh, things we can come up with. So you, you focus on this idea of Muhammad as a merchant. Um, so can you, can you give us a snapshot of this? What, what do the sources tell us about this assumption, these earlier sources, um, and how might we understand his, his social activities after reinvestigation? Yeah. So this is this was something that was really surprising to me when I started writing the book because you often read it's probably one of the first things that you learn about the Prophet Muhammad is that he was a trader. That's how he earns his living, right? Before when he was living his life as uh, an everyday individual, at least as everyday as a person like the Prophet Muhammad could possibly be, right? In uh, historical memory and. It's a very early trip that you get in Western literature. But one thing I started noticing early on is it's, it's not something that you often find in the early sources in Arabic, early kind of Arabic historiography. You don't often see them focusing on him being a trader as a way of earning his living. And I started uh, to find that curious. And one of the reasons why I find that found that especially curious is that Many of the earliest sources to mention the Prophet Muhammad by name uh, state very explicitly that he was a trader. Uh, one of the earliest ones, probably written in the 660s, uh, is that of the Armenian historian that we call Pseudo Sabios, because we don't really know who he is, and someone thought he was this guy named Sabios. He was, he's probably not, so we call him Pseudo Sabios. But anyway, we know he's very early. Uh, I see he's writing in the 660s. Uh, he calls the Prophet Muhammad a lawgiver. He gives a very accurate account of uh, early kind of Muslim uh, beliefs, at least accurate insofar as everything that he says about uh, the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, you can find correlates in the Quran. Uh, and he says that the Prophet Muhammad was a traitor. Uh, so interesting. And then you have this uh, an, another individual, another churchman by the name of Jacob of Edessa. Um, it was called Jacob of Edessa because he was once Bishop of Edessa. He's writing in Syriac, and he has this nice kind of chronological table of the events that happened, uh, you know, within the last century or so. And uh, he mentions the trade journeys of the Prophet Muhammad, and he gives a very interesting kind of trade circuit. He says that he traveled in Palestine, he traveled you know, basically all throughout the Levant and Syria and Phoenicia and things like that. Um, but if you can then look at the Syrah material, and some of the Syrah material is, is more or less contemporary with someone like Jacob of Edessa, um, you don't really have a, a lot of focus on the Prophet Muhammad as, as a traitor. A lot of people think that there is. And the reason why they think that he, that he is is because uh, if you've ever learned anything about the Prophet Muhammad, you, you, you will learn how important his first wife, Khadija, was. And Khadija was a very wealthy uh, trading woman, merchant woman, uh, long before kind of Islam came into the picture or uh, Muhammad's prophetic uh, call came into the picture. And the usual story about how uh, Khadija and the Prophet Muhammad met one another is that Khadija had actually would not tra travel to trade herself. She would remain behind in Mecca. Uh, she was not kind of a well-traveled person as far as we know. And what she would do is she would hire out proxies. She would hire trustworthy men to kind of take her goods to market and trade and however she was trading uh, to different locales on her behalf. Right. Um, and usually it said that she that the Prophet Muhammad was was very widely known as a trustworthy person, as a as a man of kind of rectitude and integrity, uh, even before it's called prophecy. And that she kind of entrusted him with uh, one of these these trade journeys. Uh, but like, so he, she hired him out. All right, so he uh, she hired him. But even though you have this this mention of this kind of journey, this trade journey that he, we only have one journey really that's mentioned in this literature, and uh, we don't have a bunch of of journeys mentioned uh, that he goes on, on her behalf. Maybe there was, who knows? Um, but the what the point is is the tradition doesn't list a bunch of journeys that he undertook. 
Um, and there's also added to this uh, another journey that supposedly the Prophet Muhammad undertook when he was a youth with his uncle. And the most famous version of the story has the Prophet Muhammad travel all the way up to uh, Bustara, or Bustara in southern Syria, where a monk sees him and prophesies that he will be uh, a prophet. Right. Um, but the earlier version of the story, he doesn't even leave the Arabian Peninsula because he's warned by uh, a Jew in Paima uh, that uh, something bad will happen to the Prophet Muhammad if he leaves, leaves the Arabian Peninsula. In any case, you have at the most two trade journeys that the early tradition uh, mentions. Uh, so the question is, well, how did the Prophet Muhammad earn his living? Uh, well, if we read the Arabic historical tradition, uh, it provides a very typological account. It says the Prophet Muhammad was a, a shepherd. So he was a shepherd like Moses uh, you know, in the land of Midian, right? He was a shepherd like Jesus, right? He was seen, he, the Prophet Muhammad is far more often portrayed in the Arabic historiographical tradition as a shepherd like uh, in the kind of the typological model of the prophets of, uh, of kind of the biblical tradition, right? David. Jesus, Moses, etc. Muhammad too was ostensibly a uh, shepherd. And so one of the questions that I ask in, in the uh, chapter is, well, was the prophet Muhammad a traitor at all? Or is this just uh, a confusion, exaggeration or, or whatever? And if I explore all the different options, uh, my view is that he was actually a traitor. I think that the Quranic text. Uh, does testify to the fact that he was familiar with trade and trading and trade journeys and that he had traveled, you know, beyond uh, Mecca, beyond the Hejaz, definitely outside of the borders of Arabia, very likely. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think that the uh, early biographical traditions about his life, he emphasizes this aspect of, of, uh, of his livelihood or, or his life while well, we don't have so many stories about about it was one we don't we you know well, there's one reason is that uh, we don't have a lot of stories about the prophet muhammad from from mecca in general relatively speaking compared to medina because it happened a long time ago and many people died before they pass on the story so there's that uh, but on the other hand too we get in the uh, 8th century an emergence of a christian polemic against the prophet muhammad that says that he that trading was the way in which he learned about uh, the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians. And so the idea that the Prophet Muhammad was able to trade and became a worldly person and familiar with the kind of the traditions of Christians and Jews and things like that it eventually becomes de-emphasized, I think, in the, in the Islamic tradition uh, as a way to uh, kind of um, prevent or guard against uh, that polemic uh, gaining sort of hold. At least that's one view of it. Uh, but I do think in general, uh, he probably did trade. He probably was a, a trader. We have much better evidence for uh, his people, Quraysh, Quraysh of Mecca, as being a trading people. That's a, a very common theme, both in the Quran and throughout the Syrian literature, kind of writ large. Uh, uh, but like yeah, and in general, and, and that uh, chapter, I think I was just I was just trying to take an, an old assumption, something that we take for granted, reinterrogate it, look at the kind of evidence anew, and uh, and sort of go a little bit into the sausage factory and see how things are actually made, like how uh, certainties and facts that we think we know uh, are maybe a bit more questionable than we thought. And then once you kind of question their foundations to try to see if you can reconstruct it on, on a different basis. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting case study and one that certainly would work well in, in classrooms as, um, in addition. So, um, in, in the middle section of the book, you, you really take us through the development of this, um, Sira Magazi literature, um, how it developed, and um, like you mentioned, the the kind of political, social, historical context in which it's uh, forming. 
Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about the early stages of this? What, uh, what was the context um, in which this tradition started to develop? Who were the key actors producing it? Um, and how did it fit into kind of the literary context of, of the time? Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. That's, uh, that's a big one. So <laughs> <laughs> I trust you can do it. Sean. Yeah. Um, it's just like when you look at a watermelon, you're like, how am I going to eat this thing? Well, let's slice it up. Uh, so, uh, okay. So I guess one of the, one, I guess we'll start here. One of the central problems that we have is uh, the question of for the early Muslims, uh, you have the Quran as a scripture. Okay. That's God's word. That's authoritative. Great. Um, do, and then you can ask the next question though is, you know, the Prophet Muhammad was also a, a man. He wasn't just a book, right? Um, and he wasn't just a person who delivered a book. Uh, does his behavior, does his cultural context, do kind of his followers' cultural norms, do, do they carry any sort of authority uh, with them as well alongside the Quran and things like that? Um, how much are things like Arabic uh, the cultural norms of, of Medina when he was uh, kind of ruler in Medina from uh, 622 to 632. How much of those carry forward for the community and things like that? How do you preserve that cultural memory? There, we have all these kind of larger questions about sort of the knowledge of the community outside of the Quran. And that knowledge of the community in Arabic was in general called Alm. Right, which just means knowledge. It's the modern in, in modern Arabic you use it just for science. Uh but it just means knowledge. Uh but this type of ilm was really, I would say, kind of the the unwritten uh aspects of the Prophet Muhammad's authority that were not an embodied in the text of scripture, but was rather carried in in the memories and the practices. Uh, in the cultural norms of his followers. And after the the conquest take place, of course, this is massively disruptive for uh, the Medinan community, for the people, of course, who are being conquered. It's very disruptive for them, too. Uh, But whenever you have a displacement of people and the spread of people across a mass geography, uh, is anyone that's uh, had the immigrant experience or the expat experience it has uh, can can testify? You have these questions of how are we going to preserve uh, our cultural identity? How are we going to preserve our uh, cultural norms? How are we going to preserve our language? Um, and the way that this uh, eventually comes to be answered is uh, that we're going to master an oral tradition that tells us the normative aspects of. Uh, the cultural milieu, uh, the political practices, and uh, of the Prophet Muhammad in the earliest community. But initially, there was a taboo of writing it down, of kind of codifying that down. Uh, and what happens as kind of generations pass is that um, people begin to die off, right? And uh, the memories of the past die with them. Uh, buildings like the Prophet's initial mosque are destroyed and rebuilt in order to accommodate a larger population of Muslims and things like that. And you sort of have this anxiety, I think, that a connection to the past is slipping away, slipping out of people's fingers. And you eventually have a kind of a cadre of scholars in multiple locations, mostly Medina and places like Kufa, but also other locations too in the empire that uh, dedicate most of their energies to uh, sort of creating a, a, a bank of, of cultural historical memory, right, uh, of this past. And eventually uh, the caliphal powers uh, want to have, that, that were at the time, they want to have this kind of bank of cultural memory written down they want to have all these stories written down um and so this the attempt to take that cultural memory and write it down and put it into books gives birth to all sorts of different genres right uh the hadith literature is one example tafsir literature that is uh, literature dedicated to 
um, exegeting and explaining the meaning of the Quran on the basis of like events and things like that. That's one genre. Um, and one of the other major genres of this Sira and Mahazi literature that doesn't just take these anecdotes and collect them together, but rather tries to put them in a narrative frame. Right? Um, and when this narrative frame is created, there's all sorts of kind of interests that that uh, that go into it. So if you kind of look at the Umayyads, you know the uh, kind of major caliphal dynasty uh, that rules until uh, 750, um, from 660s to 750. Um, well, probably even earlier, but we won't get to that. Anyway, they rule until 750. Uh, they begin to take the first initiatives to write this stuff down, probably in the early 8th century. Definitely it's written down by 742. And this transforms the, the tradition from being primarily oral to being a hybrid tradition. So being both oral and written. And it remains both oral and written for many centuries thereafter. So it's a hybrid uh, oral and written tradition, uh, not exclusively either or. Um, and of course the question is that when you look at these early materials, the Sira Mahazi literature, uh, we don't know what the earliest texts looked like because they were lost and what their entire content was, what their scope was. Our best idea is, uh, from Ibn Ishaq's, uh, book, Miskitab al-Mahazi, so he, which he writes under the, uh, Abbasids, but he probably had started writing it. Uh, well before he entered into Abbasid patronage too. Uh, so what we get really from this, from these texts when we look at them, uh, in, in a political context and our cultural context is that this isn't just, these texts weren't just about the Prophet Muhammad. Like the Prophet Muhammad was like the centerpiece. It was like the crown jewel of the narrative, right? But it wasn't really what the genre was about only. What this really is, is a kind of a vast view of the entire expanse of human history, of God's divine providential ordering of human events uh, that begins with creation uh, and that culminates in the life of the Prophet Muhammad and the emergence of his community and continues until uh, the era of the Caliphate, which the authors are writing down. And so you have this idea of political community, providential destiny, all this stuff gets poured into these texts. The Venice Hawks text, uh, I believe, was divided into kind of three main sections. The first section was called El Mubtada, or the Genesis, the beginning. And that went from, uh, broadly, the creation of the universe and the creation of Adam, all the way to all the, the previous communities, the prophetic communities, uh, before the Prophet Muhammad, so basically biblical history uh, that you find in the, in the Hebrew Bible and then also in the New Testament, uh, and then the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and then after the life of the Prophet Muhammad, a history of the conquest and the emergence of the Caliphate. So this kind of vast kind of epic history. And so what, what they are kind of really asking, uh, put it another way, is... Um, how does the life and teaching of the Prophet Muhammad uh, give rise to this imperial hegemony and this kind of cultural kind of hegemonic state that we have? How are we kind of the inheritors of prophethood and how are we the vanguards of the Prophet Muhammad's uh, prophetic message in particular? And it's kind of spread to, uh, to all humanity and, and things like that. Uh, I think that's really kind of what's going on. So it's, it's very much an elite centered discourse that interestingly enough, if you look at its history kind of, uh, has a lot of grassroots, uh, uh, from, um, uh, at least, uh, I should be careful with grassroots because we're, we're talking about the grassroots among the elites, right? So it's not that the caliphs came to these scholars and they said, Hey, Zuhri, Hey, Ibn Ishaq, write this, right? What they did is the way that a lot of very kind of rich foundations and, and patronizing institutions do today, right? They say, here's this money, do your project, right? And it's not, and it's not that uh, the project would, of course, if the project would somehow 
be seditious or undermine police legitimacy would probably run into problems. But it was just very unlikely that it would undermine uh, Khalifa legitimacy because these people were deeply embedded within the elites of their society. And they believed that the way that their society was organized and had come to form was, was more or less good, right? Sure, it needed to be tweaking. It was an ideal in certain aspects. But they wouldn't fundamentally, for example, question the idea of whether or not uh, the Islamic polity should have like hegemonic rule, right? They would never say to ourselves, you know, maybe the caliph fate shouldn't be with the Quraysh. Uh, maybe, you know, we should give Egyptians uh, back their territory and not rule over them and head back to Medina. Right? They wouldn't question uh, the political realities of their time uh, so fun- fundamentally, right? What they want to do is create a story uh, that showed how God had chosen the Prophet Muhammad and through choosing, choosing the Prophet Muhammad chose his community and was uh, a kind of achieving something of, uh, you know, cosmic and historical significance uh, through them, through his providence. Now, uh, we should note that you do this all in great detail um, with all sorts of tidbits from from text probably most listeners will never see in their life. Um, but just to, for the sake of time, um, I, I'm not going to get into the, the weeds in these. Um, the, the last uh, section of the book, um, you kind of uh, tie these uh, social historical context uh, into kind of a broader snapshot in the sense of thinking about uh, the creation of these materials within the, the late antique period. Um, and kind of rhetoric of empire uh, in the construction of these this literature. So can, can you talk a little bit about, because I, I think this is one of the key uh, mythological concerns you're interested in, is um, how, how does, um, or how do the kind of imperial discourses shape the narratives of these texts? And then how does this approach where you, you take a, com, you know, kind of comparative look uh, across late antiquity, how does that help us understand Muslim writings in this period? Yeah, so if we uh, everything that we said, you know, about uh, this literature as being like you know historical, epic, cosmic, and all that other stuff, um, this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? This I think this is one of the problems with Islamic studies in general is is that we've gotten pretty good. Uh, this is uh, even true, I think for people that are more uh, interested in, in the philological aspect of the Arabic tradition of reading all of these texts within the silo of the Islamic tradition, right? It's like, oh, this, this hadith was written very early on and recorded in this text, and then it was subsequently canonized when uh, al-Bukhari included in his hadith this kind of authoritative collection of, of uh, the traditions from the Prophet Muhammad. And then we have these great... Uh, uh, you know, uh, commentary traditions of like Ibn Hajar and Fath al-Bari that represents another development. So we kind of have this, I call a kind of a vertical reading strategy. You follow kind of the history of a text and its interpretation within the Islamic tradition. And what kind of the perspective of late antiquity does and what I hope I was able to do is provide a more lateral perspective. So instead of uh, thinking about its reception history with inside of the Islamic tradition, thinking about how it is responding to its environment and the literary genres that it was surrounded with. So one of the things that's interesting about the writing of the Sira Mahazi literature is I think this is really the birth of historical writing and historiography in the Arabic language writ large and in the Rabo Islamic tradition as well. And part of these part of the mission of these texts, and this is very explicitly stated by some of the early scholars, is they have to compete with the epic literature of the surrounding uh, uh, cultures that they uh, uh, encountered when they're spreading the Islamic polity, right? This includes the uh, the epic literature about kings that you get with Sassanid Persia, right? The pre-Islamic uh, uh, dynasty of, uh, of, of Iran. Uh, this includes kind of Greek literature. This includes... Um, you know, stories about Alexander the Great. This includes uh, biblical literature. And this includes a very popular genre that I think is uh, justly neglected by students of early Islam, 
uh, in late antiquity called hagiography, right? Stories about holy people. And so one of the things that I think we need to pay attention to and what I try to explore in those uh, chapters is the way in which uh, these genres are kind of making claims uh, about the early Islamic polity and its hegemony among its rivals, right? So what, what makes the early Islamic polity in the caliphate different from, say, the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, right? What remains of the Roman Empire? What makes it different from uh, the Sassanid uh, Empire of Iran that preceded uh, uh, the rise of the caliphate? So that. Uh, so this, this genre in some ways answers these questions. The other thing, too, is that this genre is in many ways – uh, the Sira and the Hali literature is in many ways beholden to the aesthetic demands and the aesthetic conventions of a lot of these genres as well. So I try to explore the way in which late antique hagiography uh, influenced the picture and portrait of the Prophet Muhammad that we get in a lot of this early literature, right? Because the hagiography in many ways uh, creates cultural expectations of what does a holy person look like? What does a holy person do? What's a holy person's religious experience look like? Uh, how does a holy person's uh, behavior uh, and comportment uh, affect our religiosity? What's their religiosity teach us about how one interacts with God and angels and so on and so forth? Um, all of these kind of expectations of, uh, of this literature uh, uh, finds an imprint in the early uh, uh, stories in the Sidra Mahazi literature as well. And many of like this, uh, uh, the example I always give to my students is is that of a, as a um, like a rom com or kind of just typical romantic movie, right? We always know when we go into a romantic movie, like the typical trope is is that you have two opposites that are attracted to one another. They have this amazing relationship, and then the, the eventually they have an argument. They split, right? And then. It seems like they're not going to come back together, but then by the end of the movie, they come back together and everybody's happy and, they, and the credits roll, right? It's like the Harry Met Sally type model or you know any billion other uh, type movies like this. We just that's what we expect from the movie. That's what it looks like, right? You you the same thing with like hero movies. We just expect they have an origin story and then they first try out their powers and they got to learn the moral lessons and moral consequences of their powers. Same thing works with hagiography. And, and these kind of genre conventions and genre expectations, uh, I think if we read the Syrian Mahazi literature laterally, right, in light of hagiographic literature written Syriac and Greek and so on and so forth, uh, that's contemporary with it, be, with, with these texts, uh, then we can you know, learn a lot about uh, the genre as well. Um, so you you kind of um, give us an example here with uh, another figure from the time period, and I, I don't even know how to say this. Is it Cademan? Yeah, Cademan, yeah. Okay, Cademan. So you, you, you kind of do a comparative reading uh, of Muhammad with this figure, Cademan. So can you, can you tell us about the story, where it would have been found, and why uh, narratives of Muhammad follow these kind of common literary conventions found in the, in the story of, of Caitlin. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting story, right? So um, for listeners that don't know, it's basically a Kedmon story is about uh, the earliest person to kind of compose hymns in, uh, you know, well, you know, the ancestor language of English, basically. Um, and his story is is recorded in the Venerable Bede's history of the uh, English people, or ecclesiastical history of the English people. And Bede completes his work, uh, I think, in uh, 731. Uh, so it's it's pretty much a contemporary with Ibn Ishaq, a little bit older contemporary with Ibn Ishaq and, and Ibn Shahab Zuhri, actually, too. Um, and one of the things that's very interesting about the story uh, of Kedmon is that he receives his ability to compose these beautiful hymns uh, miraculously, okay? Uh, and as it starts out, he's an unlettered, unsophisticated uh, man, and he falls asleep, and he has a vision. He has an angelic kind of visitor, and the angelic visitor tells him to uh, sing, 
And he responds, I cannot sing. And then he tells him to sing again. He says, I cannot sing. And then he tells him, you have to sing. And then he has this um, gift to kind of sing of the glories of God and his creation in this miraculously eloquent way. And uh, the head abbess of the, uh, uh, of the monastery, uh, St. Hilda, she takes him to uh, some scholars and sees whether or not what he's like singing about is, is correct and all sorts of stuff, and they confirm it and blah, blah, blah. It's an extraordinary story, and one of the things that makes it even more extraordinary is that that's the exact thing that happens to the Prophet Muhammad in his early life, right? He falls asleep, uh, and he is approached by a, uh, an angel, but instead of being told to sing, he's told to read or recite. And he says, I can't. Then he's told to recite again. He says, I can't. And then he says, recite in the name of your Lord. And then he acquires this miraculous ability to uh, recite this, uh, this divine book, this miraculously eloquent uh, Quran. And uh, first he has his doubts, and then and he goes to his wife, Khadija, who consults with a scholar name of, by the name of Warqa ibn Nofal, a Christian, said either to be learned in the Hebrew or Syriac scriptures, depending on the version of the story that you read. And it's a, it's a, it's a puzzle because the question is, is, well, how in the world do these two stories have so much in common? Right? How, so one was written you know, in North Umbria, and one was written in well, Medina or Iraq. How, how how in the world could they be so similar? They're 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 separated from thousands of miles, but they appear simultaneously in the historical record at the exact same time. And so I kind of explore two options of how this might be, and I kind of go between the two options. I don't remember if I came down on either side of one in the book uh, now because I've I've changed my mind so many times. <laughs> uh, but one, one option I have is, well, maybe uh, the story of Muhammad is so early, it's a lot earlier than our recorded versions of it, that somehow it uh, reached Bede. It reached, uh, um, uh, you know, Bede writing his, his, and he kind of used the story of Muhammad to uh, make, uh, you know, for his, as a model or archetype for, for Kedmon. But it would be a very strange for B because B doesn't even know who Muhammad is. He never mentions Muhammad in any of this text. He doesn't even know. He knows that the Saracens exist. He knows about the Islamic conquest, but he doesn't really seem to know that they have a religion or anything like that. Uh, so that seems not very likely. But uh, so I explore that as an option. And I think about some scenarios where that might have occurred. Uh, and then another scenario that I, I talk about is um, that perhaps uh Bede and uh, Zuhri ibn Ishaq, you know, the people who told the story, are relying upon a common hagiographical archetype. That is, maybe this type of story was told about many different people. And I give some examples of other people whom such a story was, was, spoke, was, was told about. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite examples is uh, the story of, of how Romanos, the melodist, an early Byzantine hymnist from uh, from Hems or Emesa, who lived long before uh, the Prophet Muhammad did, or or, or Kedmon for that matter, how kind of his story was is very similar to both of these stories. Um, but the point of kind of exploring all those stories, their similarities and things like that, at the end, what I want the main takeaway to be is to show how uh, the early Syrian Mahazi literature interacted with and drew from. A lot of the literary expectations, conventions, tropes, uh, topoi of the hagiographical literature of, of late antiquity, and how it was more or less entering into the fray and building this image of the Prophet Muhammad as um, not only a type of ideal holy person, uh, but rather as the archetype of, of a holy person. And how this kind of typological aspect of historical writing and historical storytelling is very important for understanding why the stories that we have today survive and what role they played for their initial audiences, right? What they're telling us is, in essence, not 
merely uh, kind of the raw facts, but rather they're telling us uh, that the Prophet Muhammad is is the archetype, is kind of the culmination of who 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 a holy person is and who a prophet is, and he kind of embodies and uh, fulfills all of these tropes and, and typologies uh, in his life story and in his person. Well, it's a it's a really great book, Sean. I think uh, not only for people that are working on kind of this particular time period or the historical Muhammad in general, but um, I think it would work, uh, you know, in, in methodologically in other contexts as well. So um, I hope people will will check it out. Um, I can't imagine that you're sitting around doing nothing. So uh, what what types of things are you working on now? What kind of things uh, can we expect from you down the road? Yeah. So right now I'm trying to put the finishing touches on. Uh, so I did a translation and edition of a a biography of Omar ibn Abdulaziz, this early Umayyad caliph that uh, is considered to be the fifth rightly guided caliph. He's usually what he's remembered as. So I took his earliest biography, I re-edited the Arabic text, and I uh, retranslated it, so I'm editing that now. And uh, I'm also doing the finishing touches on a project I did with my colleague, Stephen Shoemaker, or we translate. Well, I translated the Christian Arabic version. He translated the Georgian version of an eyewitness account of the Persian conquest of Jerusalem uh, that happened right before the Islamic conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, and I don't know when it comes to. I don't know what I'm going to do for my next monograph. Uh, I got a lot of uh, encyclopedia articles and uh, and other uh, articles that I've been wrangled into, but uh, we'll we'll see what what that kind of next development is. I'm kind of reeling from, from this book <laughs> right now, but I'm trying to tie up those, those big projects. Great. Well, good luck, Sean. And uh, thanks again for making the time to talk about this book. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sean Anthony about Muhammad and the Empires of Faith, The Making of the Prophet of Islam, published with University of California Press in 2020. And thanks again for listening to another podcast on new books and Islamic studies.